This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Want to become the sort of developer top rail shops like ThoughtBot fight over? Join Upcase today to get the pro training, insider knowledge, access to ThoughtBot developers, and a community of like-minded learners you need. Hone core skills like Vim, Tmux, Git, and Rails by visiting upcase.com slash half off to get 50% off your first month of Upcase. Let's get that junior out of your title and start leveling up today with Upcase. I, I will warn you, I have a lingering cough from um, a cold from like a week and a half ago. So okay. I'm mostly fine. I don't I don't think the germs come through the, the Skype, so it'll be okay. okay. Yeah, good, good point. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Lila. Hey, Derek. How's it going? It's going well. It's going pretty well. Had kind of a crazy January. I moved to a new apartment, so been a little distracted lately, but all is well otherwise. How are you? Good. I'm doing good. Uh, I was like, I wrapped up a Rails project a little bit ago mm-hmm. and was kind of like had a couple days unbooked and I was like, okay, you know, I'll work on, I was doing some like upcase work and then... Um, Matt Jankowski was like, we have a project that needs either, <laughs> he was like, either a Rails developer, an Ember developer, or an Elixir developer. And I was like, um, <laughs> I'll do the Elixir development. And he was yeah. like, okay, well, let me see. And like, he came back and he was like, okay, like two hours later, he was like, all right, you're an Elixir developer. Oh, like, it's okay, awesome. Great. And I'd used it before, not like on a client project. Like I just kind of like gone through some of the books on it and stuff like that. Been like a keep keeping apprised of it. Mm-hmm. But I think my experience with it so far, I thought we'd talk about that today because it's been top of mind for me. Yeah, but, definitely. Um, my experience so far has been pretty fantastic. Like, yeah. So tell me what initially led you to want to check it out in your investment time or spare time. Um, it has been used internally here by um, Blake and Paul in our Boston office and they have built this thing called Constable on it. Oh, you're right. right. I totally forgot that Constable is Elixir. Right. That's so awesome. It's Elixir. it's Elixir on the back end and it is React on the front end and it uses WebSockets and all that stuff. And it's mostly, like we joked around, Chad joked around and said that it should be called Buzzword, which I thought was actually a really <laughs> fantastic name for the project. Yeah. Uh, maybe they should rename it if they're listening. But uh, especially since it's like, it's centered around messaging around tags too so like the tags can be thought of as buzzwords it works so right, well right. yeah but, um i remember when they picked it up they were like both so excited about it and i was like oh okay it's just another thing and like the buzzword like i don't know just like it did feel like a buzzword kind of thing like chasing yeah. some buzzword yeah and they kept talking about how great it was and so i just kind of looked into it and i was like oh this is actually really interesting it's you know elixir was created by jose valim mm-hmm. who you know is very familiar with rails and ruby among other things and Phoenix is the web framework for it, and that's uh, written primarily by Chris McCord, or he's the creator of it anyway. And looking at both of those things from the outside as somebody who's just kind of like looking through things, it was like it felt familiar, but -hmm. it also felt like they were getting a few things right that Rails may have stepped in. (laughs) Right, right. And that was kind of borne out by like when I immediately got on the project, I did what I usually do for a Rails project, which is like I opened the routes because I was like, mm-hmm. what does this thing do? The routes can generally tell me if the routes are written well. Yep. It'll also give me a hint as to whether or not the application is written well. And like the routes were written well and they were also like just a touch more explicit than a Rails route would be. Like How so? 
well, ignoring at the top, there's like this thing called pipelines. We'll ignore that for now. But like you say resources posts or whatever. You don't you don't say like resources and then a symbol post. You say you say resources and then you give it like the path that it's going to match on. Mm-hmm. So slash posts and then you give it a controller. You don't like there's no oh, magic. Okay. There's no okay. magic behind what controller it maps to. There's no like pluralization. Mm-hmm. Like if you said if you said resources in Rails, if you say resources symbol post, right? It's going to map to the posts controller pluralized, and that trips yeah. up a lot of people, myself included. Like I mess that up on occasion too. And here yeah. you don't have that problem. Like there's a convention in Phoenix that your controllers are singular, not plural. Oh, interesting. But that, it doesn't really, Rails, right? But it doesn't that, that really matter yeah. because you're going to explicitly tell it what controller to map to anyway. Cool. So it's more explicit, and right. because it's more explicit, it's also a little more flexible. Right, and it's just like I can then just use C tags to jump right to the controller from the routes, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, there's yeah. a constant right there that it can look up. Nice. And then the routes themselves, like at the top, I mentioned this pipelines thing. Um, you declare you can declare your individual routes as being part of a pipeline, like a member of a pipeline, and you can set pipelines up to do things like authentication. Like any route, any route that goes through this pipeline requires authentication. So stuff that might get hidden away in inherited controller-based classes, actions like before things. filters and yeah. things like that, things that are like shared amongst everything can kind of just be put there. Oh, that's awesome. And it's a little more like, oh, this is this is what happens on requests to, like you want to know what happens to re- on requests to your admin pages, right? You can tell that it's going to authenticate the person as an admin and then here are all the controllers underneath that and you can tell all that directly from the router without having to be like, oh, let me go look at one of these admin controllers. Okay, it inherits from, you know, admin base. Let me go look at admin base admin base does this right so everything's just a little bit a a step closer from the routes immediately and like that was my first introduction to it and i was like okay Mm -hmm. this i like better so that's cool that is cool so that was like my introduction to it It was just the routes i remember i jumped into like our elixir chat room and i was like the router this is great (laughs) like it's very similar but the ways in which it's different are better and i have yet at least in the router to find a way in which it's different that is not better Mm-hmm. Um, so that's interesting, I think. So one thing I'm curious about is I understand that in, in what I've read about Elixir, it's supposed to be very good at concurrency. And my guess is that you would use you would reach for something like Elixir and Phoenix when you want to write like a chat app or or something along those lines. But it also sounds just very usable and enjoyable to use. So in your current client project, do you know what the factors were that led to them deciding to go with Elixir and Phoenix? They were on a prod they were on a project that was their current like deployed version of this site is written in Node. Okay. And I guess to them, I haven't looked at the code, but from what they say it's it's hopeless and needs to be rewritten for whatever reason. I haven't dug into that. And the people they were working with previously really wanted to work in Elixir and a couple of the people there had experience with Elixir. So they the the folks at the client are all I think it's fair to say they're more experienced with JavaScript. Mm-hmm. So they have that background and they're, so they're doing an Ember front end and then there's like people that are trying to learn Elixir as well. And then Paul and I are working on it from ThoughtBot on the Elixir stuff. Okay, cool. So I don't, I don't know if what informed that decision was like a concern about a performance or like they knew they needed to rewrite it and they just decided like, well, let's use this Elixir, let's use Elixir or mm-hmm. what the case may be. But, you know, I'm certainly enjoying it. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. They're not like it. It is just. It is. I know. I say just. It is just an API. So it's not making use of any of the um, Phoenix's channel support. Okay. Yeah. I was going like to ask that. if you're using 
no. channels or pub sub. I'm or... mostly just using it the way I would use Rails. Right? Uh-huh. Like it feels pretty good. It feels like a better Rails to me. Oh wow! Um, you know, to <laughs> to get right to the conclusion. Yeah, um, yeah. So far, you know, and it's not. It, it, it isn't just a matter of like it being new and me being like, oh, I'm in love with this new thing. Mm-hmm. Because I've tried other new things that just don't like kind of capture my like, oh, I just want to do everything in this now. But this yeah. has kind of like captured my, I just want to do everything in this now. And to be fair, like I'm building an API, so I haven't used much of the like view layer type stuff. I've played around with their version of the asset pipeline, which actually is not an Elixir thing. They use Brunch, which is like a NPM library for doing asset pipeline type things. So I don't know how like equivalently powerful that is. But it seems like a wise decision at this point. Like when the Rails asset pipeline was around, there weren't really JavaScript native t- style things that did what the pipeline does, right? And yeah. now that tooling has matured. So rather than re-implementing that in Phoenix and Elixir, they farm off to Brunch in this case, mm-hmm. um, which seemed like a good idea. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. So you're building a JSON API in Elixir. Yep. yep. And... The things I can think of that you would need in that situation is obviously you need an ORM and you need something to serialize the data. So how does serialization work or or are there serialization libraries that you use with Phoenix? Yeah, it's um, this project. I mean, I'm not familiar with all the libraries, but this project is using a library called JA Serializer. So JSON API underscore serializer. Mm -hmm. Uh, We can link link to that in the show notes. But it is reminiscent of like active model serializers in a lot of ways. It works. Like there were some, uh, I submitted, like I think my first Elixir patch to an open source project was to that, to like clarify some of the deprecation messages and make them consistent and make them like noticeable. Mm-hmm. And we fixed some of that stuff. There were like, the thing I worked on, the first pull request I worked on on this app was Ian, who was working on the Ember side, had noticed that like a number of the endpoints were super slow. Oh yeah, um, and he was like, "I thought I thought Elixir was fast. Like, <laughs> what's, what's going, going on?" on? <laughs> and it was like, I looked at it and I was like, "It's doing hundreds of queries." I was like, "This is the same problem, all over again." Like what? Uh-huh. Like okay, so like that made me take a step back, and I was like, "Oh, so I okay, I guess I'm doing this thing where I fix n plus one queries again, just in a different <laughs> language." And what it turned out to be was like we were using an older version of the serialization library. Because Ecto, which is the ORM, you mentioned you'd also need an ORM. Ecto is the ORM that uh, Jose writes. And it is very explicit. Like it will not, if you try and access an association that's not yet loaded, you get an association not loaded back. Oh, wow. Okay. And I think what was happening was this older version of the serializers was detecting that and then loading it. Mm-hmm. Right, so it was just firing yeah. off, going ahead and firing off the query. So once we upgraded, right. once we upgraded the serializers, one of the breaking changes was that we're no longer doing that for you. And then it just became a matter, a matter of like reading the error messages that get output to say like, oh, this association is not loaded, and then going into the controller and making sure we preload the needed associations. Yep. Um, so that was actually really nice to know yeah, that like this. That's... Like yes, I did have to deal with n plus one queries, but it was because the library was probably was behaving in a way that like the ecosystem would not like it to behave in, right? Not yeah. because it was yeah. something that was easy to mistake. Yeah, that's pretty cool that the new version of this library tells you when right, right. the association. Yep. So Ecto is very ex- very explicit. It doesn't like moving on to Ecto a little bit. Like yeah, it doesn't, yeah. It doesn't, ins- it doesn't inspect your schema like Rails does. So there's a little duplication. Mm-hmm. that you have to do like you would write your migration 
very similar to how you, it has migrations, just like Active Record has migrations. They're a little more close, the language of their migrations are a little more closely aligned with the language of the SQL that you would write. Mm -hmm. So it's not like add index, it's create index, that kind of thing. So that's a little bit, it takes a little getting used to, but then it's also like, oh, I can see why they made that change or why they decided to go that way. You know, not, mm -hmm. not that it's a change they made. It wasn't like they're porting over Rails, but <laughs> um, it does feel like that in some places. Yeah. But so you would you would write your migrations and you would say like a post has a title, a post has a, a body, it has an author ID, it's associated to an author, that kind of thing. But then you go into your, what, they're, what are currently called models, but I guess in the next version of Ecto will be called schemas because they're not traditional models. Mm -hmm. And you define all of that again. <laughs> okay. So you say, here is the schema. So it doesn't reflect on the database, which is both a blessing and a curse, I think. Right. Yeah. It makes stuff like Sean has talked about with the attributes API a little easier because there's no like reflection layer that you have to like get in between. You know, you can just, mm -hmm. you can declare that your schema has this field and it maps, it maps to this type. Right. They're not right. coupled. There's nothing to, there's nothing to hook into in order to declare that. Yeah. Um, which is a bunch of work Sean has done to kind of make that the case in Rails as well. Yep. Um, but this kind of does that out of the box, which is nice. Yeah. So those two things, like you get you get Ecto, and it helps you. It saves you from terrible queries for the most part, from what I've seen. Yeah, that's awesome. And you get you know JA serializers does a decent job of doing JSON. <laughs> I guess I should say as decent a job as I've seen anybody <laughs> yet do of yeah. producing something that somebody could look at and be like, yes, that conforms to JSON <laughs> API, because you can't. There's no schema for it, so you can't just be like, it's been, that has been a little bit of a a trouble on this project is like not being able to just say like authoritatively, does this response conform to JSON API as mm. part of our test suite? Because there's no JSON schema for JSON API. Yes. I feel like this is a tangent, but... No, let's do the tangent. The tangent is that I feel like I was relatively recently reading the JSON API frequently asked questions. And there's a question on there that's like, can I describe JSON API in terms of JSON schema? And it says yes. But I've also heard anecdotally from at least a couple of people that that's not possible, that you can't do it. So, and, this, you know, your story here is one of those anecdotes. How it's, it just doesn't work. It's not, it's not working. It's not possible. Oh, this is a change. Interesting. Does it say that? Yeah, no, it doesn't it say that. I'm looking it up. So. On the, the FAQ says, yes, you can find the JSON schema definition at jsonapi.org slash schema. It's as restrictive as possible, but has flexibility to be extended with, within your documentation. Right. That's, yeah, that's what I remember reading. It used to I've, say I've... no. Oh, really? It used, to, oh, say that, it used okay. to say that JSON schema was not flexible enough, which really meant that JSON API was yeah. too flexible <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. to be nailed down to any one schema. So I'll have to look into this. This is definitely a change because I know when I talked to Gordon, about JSON API on an earlier episode of the show, which we'll link to in the show notes. I think we read through it as well, and both both of us saw that it said no earlier. <laughs> it's funny that we're revisiting this. <laughs> right. It's interesting. Now, well, it's great because now I know this has changed, and I mean, I should look into this because, like, we had problems where, like, some of the responses have pluralized keys and some of them don't. And I was like, well, which one is actually are you supposed to be doing for JSON API? And mm -hmm. so these types of things are like I don't I don't know if anybody has a like perfectly conforming JSON API like yeah a perfect a perfectly conforming API that returns JSON that's that conforms to JSON API at the spec right it's really an unfortunately named spec it is it is I yeah it is an unfortunately named spec it also seems kind of 
aspirational. Like we are the JSON API. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You know, this is the first team I'm working with that is in, like trying to use it throughout, and everybody has complaints about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't. I mean, I, I'm no expert on it. I'm just trying to. I'm just using the serializers and then trying to be like, oh, okay, this is supposed to be plural, so we'll make this change, <laughs> that kind of thing. But yeah, that seems like the approach you have to take to maintain your sanity. <laughs> yeah. Because if you try to just write everything at once to adhere to this schema, then you, I, I think it's easy to get lost down rabbit holes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I thought about doing that when I realized that, like, oh, the, you know, the outermost data node here is supposed to be plural for all of these serializers, and I was mm-hmm. like, oh, okay, I should change all that, and I was like, oh, no, no, it's like I'll just I'll do it one by one when I yeah, have when yeah. I have to because like the Ember side is already written to to like either the Ember JSON API adapter has the same issue or they've already accounted for it and like overwritten their serializers to handle it. And then like, yep. it's just this back and forth that you have to deal with when you have a split project like this too. It gets, yeah. It gets complicated. Yeah. We were talking about something else before we started talking about JSON API. We were talking about Ecto. Oh yeah. We were talking about Ecto being Ecto having like you, it doesn't reflect on the schema. So you have to tell it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's kind of a theme throughout. I would say it's it takes me more code to do equivalent things. Not much more code. Mm-hmm. It can feel occasionally, and this is Phoenix slash Elixir. This is really Phoenix that I'm talking about at this point, Phoenix and Ecto. It can feel a little more boilerplatey, I think. Mm-hmm. Interesting. At the same time, when I say like, oh, this feels like boilerplate, I look at it and I understand it's boilerplate right now because it's the same everywhere. But I also understand there are cases where there are frequent cases, like cases that are going to come up frequently enough that it's worth this boilerplate where you're going to want to change the the boilerplate in some place. Mm-hmm. Right. And now you have that ability to do so. Yeah. It also does things like force you to handle, like if you call, if you call save or something like that, the, the return value you get is a tuple, which says like either it's okay and here's your record or it failed and here's your, and here's hmm. your change set that you passed me to make that, that failed for this. Okay. Um, which kind of forces you to handle both via pattern matching, which Elixir has as well. Right. So it forces you to handle both of those via pattern matching. If you don't, it'll say you have a non-exhaustive pattern. Yeah. So I understand that Elixir is a functional language. Mm-hmm. How does that inform your experience uh, in the code base? You know, I haven't thought too much about it. I guess mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. when I think about it is like when I find myself, I know I have a list of items and I just want to call map on them and I'm like, Oh no, wait, no, wait, I have to do like enum dot map and then provide mm-hmm. the list and then, you know, provide a function to go over those lists a little more like JavaScripty yep. you would see. And that's when I start to think about it. But for the most part, what's been nice is like a lot of the code I've written in rails apps lately has been trying to like break out of rails as quickly as possible. Yeah. And then I found myself, I find myself writing in a more functional style once I do that. So writing, I might write a command object that has like take some sort of state in and then it has one method, which is like perform this thing, Mm -hmm. which is basically a function at that point. Yep. So it has been pretty comfortable, actually, except for when I need to like get over my muscle memory of being able to just like dot syntax everything uh, for message passing. This might not be a good question, but I remember reading that in Elixir, there are lists and there are tuples. But tuples are stored in memory, which makes them fast to access but expensive to update. So 
do you ever find yourself like thinking, oh, I should be making sure to construct a list here instead of a tuple or anything like that? No, just hasn't really come up. <laughs> yeah, it just doesn't come up. Um, I still get confused between like, is this a list? Is this a tuple? Is this a keyword list? Is this a, mm -hmm. is this a map? Because <laughs> um, there's a few different types that are involved there. I, I still yeah. don't have it all nailed down. And Elixir 1.1, Elixir prior to 1.2 had like map, hash map, um, and a couple other things. Elixir 1.2 made maps. I think I'm, I think I'm getting this right. Elixir 1.2 made maps more performant for large collections. So they're kind of uh, soft deprecating some of those other things that were built for larger collections. Mm -hmm. So they're kind of trying to simplify things. So, it, so I'm, right. I have to figure out what I really need to learn. <laughs> And then try yeah, to yeah, the and I guess if you, yeah, if you have maps, then that's your go-to. You don't go to tuples. If you have maps, then use right. Those. Some things have tuples. Some things have maps. I don't know. Or uh, um, as I saw today, like a a list of tuples is another thing you'll see sometimes. Mm -hmm. I just haven't. I don't. I don't have enough experience to really. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it doesn't really matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter for what I'm doing right now. Yeah. And in terms of performance, it would probably take a long time to get to the point where it did matter. Right. Everything, I would say everything is super fast right now. Um, mm -hmm. When we got onto this project, there were probably somewhere around 400 tests or something like that. And it was taking 25 seconds, mm -hmm. which I was a little disappointed with because I was like, I thought this was really fast, right? Like, <laughs> what's going on? Yeah. And we fixed the N plus one bug that I talked about earlier. We fixed a couple other things. Like we replaced some fixtures they had this fixture library in use when we started, which was like Rails fixtures, when you load them, you typically load them once and then you run your entire test suite. Mm -hmm. These are fixtures that get loaded every time you need them in the test. So they're kind of like factories, mm -hmm. but they load a bunch of data that you may or may not use. So we switched to, we've been switching, you know, as we update tests to Ex Machina, which is a library that Josh Steiner and Paul Smith at ThoughtBot wrote, which is basically a port of Factory Girl. Cool. to Elixir. Mm -hmm. And I don't know much about it, except that it works very similarly. Like, it doesn't have some of the things that Factory Girl has. I know I've talked to Josh Clayton, who maintains Factory Girl, and he's been he said, like, oh, it's great that they got a chance to, like, not make the same mistakes that uh -huh. we made with Factory <laughs> Girl. So he seems pretty jealous of it. Um, so that's cool, I guess. Nice. But once we did that, today, I think the tests, we now are up to, like, 450 tests. So we have more tests, better coverage. And we're down to like the tests take like six seconds to run or something. Oh, like that's that. a huge difference. That's massive. And the, like to have a 450 test suite that takes six seconds to run. I mean, that doesn't count yeah. if it has to compile before it runs, but like mm -hmm. still, like it's really, really nice for mm -hmm. TDD. Although sometimes when it has to recompile, the TDD loop gets a little like, oh, okay. Like compile is not, compiling is not slow. I can mm -hmm. still compile and run the whole test suite faster than I can run the test suite in most, most Rails apps. So definitely. Yeah, I think on my project right now, it's like five minutes on CI. <laughs> mm. yeah. yeah, I've been I've been like experimenting in the Ember part of the code base a little bit because I want to help mm. out there as well. Um, when, I, when we make changes on the API side that are going to break Ember, like I don't want to just be like, here, I made this change. Go uh, fix it. Go fix it. People who work yeah. on Ember, like I want to be able to investigate what the impact of the change is going to be and then maybe even potentially just make the change myself, even though I don't have Ember experience at all. Mm -hmm. um, so I've been kind of working with Ian a little bit to pick that up and the test there it's interesting because like i feel like years ago people used to tell you they really liked javascript because they could just like write it in their browser and it was like really lightweight to edit and like you know when you make an edit you could refresh there's no compile step or anything like that but writing javascript in 2016 and trying to write like modern javascript with es6 means you have to like 
compile it down to ES5. Right. You're probably linting everything, stuff like that. That all takes time. So it takes like 20 seconds to build the what? JavaScript project. And wow. I don't know. I mean, this might be absurd. I don't know. Like, I don't have experience with this, but it's just to build it without running the tests. Mm -hmm. And then testing it takes several minutes, hmm. um, like eight or nine minutes to run the test suite because they have a lot of acceptance tests that do actually like click around the site. Mm -hmm. They're not hitting the API or anything like that, but, you know, they're doing some stuff. So it's, it's an interesting contrast to see like, oh, they have slow tests too. And I don't know if that's just this Ember project or if, you know, when I'm talking to Ian, he said that acceptance level tests in Ember are just slow. Like that's just yeah. a thing. And to be fair, we don't have in the um, API side, we don't have t any tests that would be equivalent to like Capybara tests. Um, mm -hmm. We do have tests that go through the whole stack and like submit params. They go through the router. They get to the controller. The controller prepares the serialized response and then returns the serialized response. But there's no there's no clicking, right? There's no like click yeah, on yeah. this element, load this page. And I don't know, I don't know how those would perform. But I I know for certain that like just in my experimentation that like when you do get to having to write HTML views, the HTML views are significantly faster in Elixir. So I'd expect it to be faster. I just don't know. If you had a full like Rails app and then you ported it to like you ported every feature to Elixir and it wasn't using an API or anything like that, I don't know like whether or not the speed up. I know it would the app would be faster. I don't know if your tests would see, see a similar mm -hmm. thing. I suspect they would, but who knows? Yeah, I don't know. I have not worked on an Ember project. The only relevant experience I have in that area is uh, working on standalone Angular apps, which. I don't remember the tests having taken that long to run, but I also don't think that there were that many tests and there were definitely not very many acceptance tests. They were all just unit tests. Yeah. Yeah, yeah the unit test part, do they do run a lot faster. Like once it gets past those acceptance tests, it's pretty fast. Yeah. Yeah, so that's been like my general experience has been like it's a little more explicit than Rails in places, but it's very familiar if you're a Rails mm -hmm. developer. So it's yeah. easy. It's, it was really easy for me to pick it up and get into it. How is the um, tooling for debugging? Um, <laughs> there is a debugger that I have not used. I want <laughs> you haven't something. needed to. Right, Great. <laughs> right. There is a debugger that I haven't used. There's been a couple times where I've wanted it, and I've been like, I should look up how to use the debugger. Because there is a debugger. I just haven't, like, you got to, for some reason, it's not committed as a dependency to, like, if you hmm. look up how to do it, a lot of places say, like, don't add this as a dependency. And it's like, well, why not? Nobody explains to me why you wouldn't just have it there all the time. Uh -huh. So anything that I have to go and edit my, like, the equivalent of the gem file in in um, Elixir, anything I have to go and do that every time I want to use it is just there's too much friction for me to want to actually use it. Yeah. So I just haven't, haven't explored that too much. Um, you can call inspect on basically anything and get back what you need for puts debugging, mm -hmm. the equivalent of puts debugging, I guess. <laughs> um, cool, so I've been cool. doing a decent amount of that. Yeah. But for the most part, it seems it's pretty enjoyable. Um, yeah. The testing framework is, at, we're using XUnit. There is, I guess there is XSpec or something similar to RSpec or whatever, which as a first for me, I actually really enjoy the XUnit style. Oh yeah? I usually really miss RSpec when I do other testing frameworks, but XUnit seems, seems pretty nice. Like. I'm sure it has other assertions, but every assertion I use is just assert, and then I assert something equals something else, and that's it. <laughs> and like the errors I get back aren't like if you would do, if you were to do that in Rails or in Minitest or whatever, you would see like expected false got true, mm -hmm. but it tells me like expected you know the left hand side to be this, and the right hand side was actually expected the left hand side to match the right hand side, and here's what the left hand side was, and here's what the right hand side was. Yeah. Um. So you get a better assertion message out of that. So which is 
really when I look when I look at it, it's a lot of what I get out of the RSpec matchers is really good error messages. Yeah, I feel like a couple times you've you've mentioned how good the error messages are in a couple different tools, like in Ecto. It sounds like in XUnit, and so do you feel like maybe you haven't felt super compelled to reach for a debugger because you're getting really good feedback from the error messages? I don't know. It's tough to say. Yeah, it's the error message. The error messages aren't like they're not Elm level error messages where like you get like a draw an ASCII drawing that telling you what's going on. Like if mm-hmm. you see some of those that come out of Elm, it's pretty impressive. Um, but they're they're useful. Um, there's no equivalent that I've seen of like you called ID on negative two. Or, you know, you know, like the weird stuff you used to get out of Ruby, which I think they've kind of fixed as well anyway. So I wouldn't say the error messages are fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, there's certainly a lot of libraries that aren't doing a great job of outputting like deprecations in a consistent manner and in a way that tells you like where the code that triggered the deprecation is. Like with the with the JA serializers library, that was a big part of the change I committed was like, I see these deprecations, but it doesn't tell me <laughs> where they're coming from. Ah, I see, um, I see. So it doesn't have caller information in there basically. Yeah. Um, so I think there's some room to, wor- I think there's some room to go there, but you know, it's yeah. been, it, it hasn't been anything that's been, like contrasted with when we were trying to debug some Ember problems yesterday, and it was like, here's a giant stack trace. None of it is our code. Like, like what? Like I don't. Oh man. I don't know where to go. Um, so it gave me a stack trace, but uh-huh. the stack trace was not helpful at all. Yeah. So interesting. So speaking of room for improvement, um, what are the things that have struck you that could be better about Elixir or Phoenix? I missed the Rails CLI, which I didn't think I would mm-hmm. say. Interesting. So in Elixir, everything that you would typically do with the Rails command or the rake command, or even the bundle command, <laughs> you basically pipe through mix. Okay. So you say like yeah. um, you say mix, you know, deps.install or deps.get, I think is what it is, and that's basically install, I think. I forget exactly. Um, but something like that. And then like if you wanted to generate an ecto, what they're gonna call schema, but is currently a model. You would, or a migration, let's say a migration, you would say mix ecto.gen.migration and then give it a name. Mm-hmm. So what that does, it's interesting. I don't know how I feel about this yet, but it means that I have to know that when I'm generating a migration, I'm using ecto. So it would be equivalent as if you, if instead of saying Rails generate migration, you said like rake active record, rake active record generate migration, right? So you have yeah. to know... And like when I want to start the server, I say mix phoenix server, phoenix.server. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that starts the server. If I want to get into a, then, then I'm like, okay, so I use everything in mix that I can get used to this. I can understand what parts are provided by who. And then you get into it and you're like, okay, I want to get into a console. So I'm like, I don't know, mix console, mix phoenix console, mix. Uh-huh. Like, nope, nope, nope. The way you do that is you do IEX dash uh-huh. capital S mix. I don't really know what that does just yet. Huh, interesting. <laughs> but I think it, I think it passes your mix environment to IEX, which is the REPL. Yeah. And so then it boots it up in that context. So you get all the dependencies that you would have inside your project. And you can go a step further and say IEX-X mix phoenix.server. And that starts it up as if that starts up the server and gives you a console with the server running. Oh, that's cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah. But like having to know like, oh, now I need to run like, and not just like everything goes through Rails or Rake. And in Rails 5, everything's actually going to go through Rails. So it's, a, I think, partly a blessing in that, like, you have to know your dependencies and what they're providing. 
mm-hmm. and partly a curse in that like you have to know your dependencies and what their CLI is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but it's a small, that's a pretty small thing um, that I've kind of stumbled across, but I think it's, it's something anyway. That's a little bit of a tripping point. And then the only other thing I can think of is the Elixir REPL is not as nice to me anyway as the uh, Ruby REPL. It's built on an Erlang REPL, I think, because Elixir itself is built on Erlang. It makes use of a lot of Erlang tools. You can interact with Erlang libraries, things like that. But like, it does weird things. Like, I'm used to pressing Control D to disconnect from either a terminal or a shell or whatever. Or so it works. If you're in, you know, the the Postgres shell, if you're in PSQL, you can press Control D and you exit. If you're in Pry or IRB, you press Control D and you can exit. If I'm in IEX and I press Control D. <sighs> Nothing you know what? happens. I noticed that. I remember that when I was mess <laughs> like I haven't done much with Elixir, but I did mess around with it and I, I could not figure out how to exit. I could not figure <laughs> out how to get out of it. I was right. I had to like look up the documentation to exit. Right. The so REPL. you press control C and then something else comes up and you press yeah. control C again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you're out. But I've yeah. also done like I'm used to in Ruby, I'm used to being in the REPL and typing half of a line and realizing it's not what I want, and then pressing control C mm-hmm. and it just cancels that line and gives me a, a fresh new line. And yeah. now I press Control C, and this menu gets up, and I haven't figured out how to get from that menu <laughs> back, back to the... what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that so sounds pretty. That's annoying. a little interesting. <laughs> Other little yeah. things, like it just hasn't been as, like, I have you know five six years of worth of you know learning little Ruby REPL tr- tricks that yeah. don't translate to IEX. Yeah. Um, and the Control D thing is actually is the one that's driving me the the driving me nuts. Like yesterday. In the Ruby REPL, you can use underscore to represent the return value of your last successful command. Right. So you can, like, if you run a command, you're like, oh, I actually want to do capture that to a variable. You can just do foo equals underscore, and then you've captured it. And there's been a couple times I wanted to do that. So finally, yesterday, I went digging, and there's, like, you can use V for that for whatever reason. Oh, I don't know. That's cool. Value, I guess. I don't, I'm not sure. Uh-huh. But, like, that took a while to kind of figure out. Um, yeah. So all this stuff, I, I think the REPL's slightly, I think... I think people would mostly agree that the REPL is better um, in Pry or IRB. But other than that, like the differences I've really liked, it's a little, it's more explicit in places. There's still convention over configuration in a lot of places. Like where they decided to be more explicit was wise. And honestly, like I think the, I think the biggest one was not doing the pluralization stuff for you automatically. Mm-hmm. Like that was a brilliant decision. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and like it's just been, kind of business as usual for the yeah. most part, which is actually really nice. It's like if you're a Rails developer and you're curious about Elixir, your skills are basically going to carry right over. You're going to be comfortable within a week. Right. That sounds that sounds really satisfying to, to be able to jump on something and it not be so foreign that you can't be comfortable and familiar with it within a week or two. And but it's still like new and you're still learning things. Right. So it's, it's got that newness to it, which means like I go home at night and I'm still playing around with it. Cause I'm like, yeah, oh, yeah, like yeah. this is great. I'm having, uh, like, I want to get better at this so that I'm better when I'm doing my stuff. And I also just want to like, I want to know more about this. And right now I'm really just using it. Like I would use, like I would use rails. Um, yeah. I'm not using any of the, the channel stuff or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a, this is a kind of a random question, but I, I remember that you can define custom types in Elixir mm-hmm. and I was wondering basically how that's used in the real world and if you have any custom types in your application. Yeah. So there's, I think I'm going to get this terminology right. I'm not super familiar with it, but there's this idea of type specs. Right. Um, that's, yeah. That's the thing that allows you to define a custom type. Right. And so Paul, I've seen use them in a couple places and I've talked to him about like, oh, why, you know, what's this getting you? Where he's used it is in places where 
we have say like something that delivers mail or something like that and we write we wrote something that delivers mail in production but in development or test we want to swap that out with some with a different thing mm-hmm. so in the development version or in the production version he defines a type spec oh cool okay it says like it has to have these methods or whatever they behave like this they return this yep and then the test version when he swaps that out will have to also implement the same things returning the same types yep it's not anywhere near what you would get from something that has actual like built-in forced strong typing everywhere but it can mm-hmm. get but used it seems like you know i'm not an expert it seems like used <laughs> uh, <laughs> not an expert i've only been doing this in a few weeks um it seems like used appropriately it can used in the right places it can solve some of the problems that you would want to solve with type systems not nearly all of them and i don't think you get like the performance benefits you would get from a strong type system or anything like that but i haven't i haven't looked into it too much but that's where i've seen that we're using it and i think i thought it was a really good use when paul introduced that in a couple different places yeah that's cool that's a really great example mm-hmm. and like in comparison to the languages we talk about a lot which would be like we talked about haskell a lot on the show i think yeah, we have Haskell has come up a lot. Right. And then Rust, obviously, we've talked about a lot. <laughs> so Rust has like strong, strict typing, right? Yeah. Haskell has strong, strict typing. And also, Haskell is also like functionally pure. Like it's, uh, whereas Rust is willing to be more loosey goosey with that, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Functional yeah. purity is not like a, a tenant of Rust. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I would say that's the same thing with Elixir. It doesn't seem to be like immutability is a thing in Elixir, but functional purity is not necessarily like a thing you can it's not yeah, always yeah yeah no, no, I, I get what yeah. you're saying which i don't know i mean seems okay to me so far it does like i was talking about with joe ferris a little bit because he he loves haskell and he wants everybody to write haskell yes and i was you know walking to lunch with him and i was like you know i've really liked doing the elixir work like i feel like it has solved a lot of it has solved some of the pains that i typically have with rails or i see in Rails, like just this n plus one query I feel like yep. that's the first thing I do on established apps where I come in. I'm like, oh, they have a ton of N plus one queries. <laughs> right? So just having an ORM that actively discourages having N plus one queries mm-hmm. is a huge win. Um, and there's other small things like that that all I feel like add up. And I'm not willing to say, like, I don't want to use Rails anymore. I only want to use Elixir. But certainly right now, I'm very much interested in that. And Joe's point was like, that's great. I want people, I just want to get the inertia moving. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah like yeah. I just want to get, I just want to get people moving. And if people like you and some other people, they like, they're like, okay, Elixir's interesting. Let me check this out. They're already moving. Yeah. So like maybe now I can be like, you want to go a step further? Like <laughs> let's do this Haskell stuff or Rust right. or whatever, you know? Yeah. Elixir is the gateway drug. Right. That's kind of what he's, he's excited <laughs> about, which is interesting. It's true. Like we really do have a built up knowledge of rails here. Like we hired specifically for that in a lot of cases. And I think we do a little bit less than a little less of that now. Like we're willing now to take on people who have experiences in other places, but you do have to have experience with rails because of the number of rails projects yeah. we work on. It's mostly what we do. It's, it's kind of like the year of the, I think it was was Joe or somebody was saying this. It's kind of the year of the polyglot at ThoughtBot. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Like I know our New York office is actually doing a lot of Python work currently. Yeah. And we haven't taken, I, th- I thought I might end up on one of those projects. So I was, you know, earlier, we, I think I talked to you about Python earlier. Yes. Uh, in an earlier episode. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. We talked but about that. But I never that. actually got, like, that's the big difference I feel like is like in a similar way that I played with Elixir and Phoenix, I played with Python and Django. Mm-hmm. But the big difference was here's a project to sync yeah. your teeth into. Yeah. You also sound more excited about Elixir than you sounded about Python when we talked. That could be, I I think it's because it's different enough that it's exciting. Whereas Python wasn't different enough. 
Yeah. And also because like I was just saying, like having a real thing to do mm-hmm. is Oh makes, yeah, it makes, makes all, all the difference. difference. Right. Yeah. Like my wife has been going back to school to become a teacher and she has to like part of what she's doing for one of these classes, she has to keep like a journal of young adult literature or children's literature that she's read and like what she thinks is appropriate about it and like what it, what she thinks kids could get out of it, that kind of thing. And she's just been like writing in a spreadsheet. And I was like, can I build you an Elixir oh, awesome. Phoenix app for this? And she was like, no. I was like, but I, I could do it in probably like a couple nights. It'd be done. It'd be great. And she was like, no, no, I just, I want to use my spreadsheet. I was like, That's all right. Amazing. Okay. Uh, okay. Awesome. So I guess <laughs> you are available, ready yeah. and willing to build yeah. Elixir apps. Yeah. <laughs> ready to willing to build Elixir apps. Cause I want to, I want to find more things. I honestly, I want to find more things I don't like about it. Like I want, yeah. I want something to come up and make me like, be like, Oh, cause I do feel a lot of the way I felt yeah. about rails when I first started where I was like, this is fantastic, but I know there's something hiding out there. I know there's something people with more experience with Elixir are listening to this podcast going, just wait until you find <laughs> out about X and maybe yeah. they still like Elixir, but they know about the dark corners. Right. And I don't, yeah, yeah. I don't know the dark yeah, corners you, yet. You, are, you do sound very positive, which is great, <laughs> but almost like I'm a little skeptical. Naively like, is, so. <laughs> <laughs> is your experience really this great? Um, I'm sure it is right now, but mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to see what you discover, especially if you, you know, work more in the view layer and with assets with yeah. Elixir and Phoenix and see what comes up there. Cause that is often an area where frameworks don't necessarily do things the way you would like them to. And I really do like the rails asset pipeline for as much like pain as it originally caused when it came out. Like it does a really nice job of like digesting everything so that you have like unique URLs and giving you helpers that you can then include those unique URLs in your CSS. Like, I don't know how that happens. Yeah. It's magical. <laughs> I don't, I don't know how they're going to do that, how they replicate something like that in brunch, but maybe they do. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but I haven't had to do that just yet. I would love to do a, an end to end Elixir app with no JavaScript front end and find out. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you've got one you want to build, you can go to thoughtbot.com <laughs> and click hire us. Uh, <laughs> and we'll make it for you. Yeah. Yeah. For a fee. <laughs> <laughs> right. First, well, yeah, you'll have to pay some money. But, <laughs> um, but if I sold you, are you ready to like, you ready to jump oh, in? Oh, yeah. Actually, I, I am totally sold. Um, <laughs> and I did play around with Elixir a little bit, and I read the Phoenix docs, and I was really impressed. They, the documentation was great. Elixir, the syntax and the conventions are similar to Ruby, so it was very readable to me. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, maybe I'll start helping out on Constable. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what needs to be done there. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's been really enjoyable. And the other like the other corollary I would say to Ruby is like, you know, Ruby has the like, Matt's is nice and so we are nice. And, you know, Matt's is the person who created Ruby and he's just like a nice guy, right? And yeah. like Jose created Elixir and Jose is just a great person. Like mm-hmm. I've interacted with him already a couple of times and a couple of pull requests and he's just like a perfectly cool person to interact with so it's like nice it's a nice community not that rails is not a nice community it's a bigger community yeah i would say so like just dipping my toes into the elixir open source community i run into the same people a lot already you know which Mm -hmm. is kind of interesting but yeah it's just a fun thing to be doing right now i think so be kicking the tires on it more cool cool i'm excited for you and i'm excited to do more myself yeah i hope we can find more work and get more people trying it out because I do think either they'll like it or the inertia will encourage them to find something else they like. But because yep. um, I don't know, are you talking to a lot of people who are just like, no, Rails is great. I want to stay with Rails forever. Nope. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Nope. Uh, nope. 
Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm not either. And that might just be like our nature, right? Like that nobody wants yeah. to just continue writing what they're writing forever. Yeah. I, I would say I was a little more protective of it. Like when I first started here Yeah. because I was like, no, I just got to be like an expert in this thing. And now you want me to go learn Haskell? Like, <laughs> <laughs> but now, you know, the shine is worn off, I guess. And I guess the shine wears off on all things probably, but yeah, I think that the shine wears off when you feel like you're solving the same problems with the same tools in the same way over and over. And if you can change one of those things, you know, solve the same problems with different tools, mm-hmm. then it's more interesting. And maybe you're even taking the same approaches, making the same design choices. But if you're changing the tooling, then it's just more interesting. Yeah, that's probably spot on. Because like I would say I was definitely in a spot where I had solved like a lot of my projects had been performance oriented projects mm-hmm. where I was seeing the same performance mistakes that people make in Rails every time. <laughs> over and over. Like, okay, N plus one query here. You're firing queries from the view over here. Like just the same problems again and again. Mm-hmm. And so changing both the problem, like now this is an API and it's not yep. like the work is not performance and the tools like cha- basically changed everything and kind of just like it came along at the perfect time for me probably. I was getting a little burned out on the work I was doing. So. Yep. Um, came along at a great time. Good. Anyway, that's all I get to say. <laughs> yeah, this is really interesting. I really, I really enjoy hearing about your experience with Elixir, and it's it sounds awesome. And I do have more questions, but they're the kind of questions that should be asked, like in pull requests. You know, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Those kinds of. We are probably going to talk about Elixir more, just because I'm working on it and excited about it. Obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, also, we've reached out to Jose Valim, and he's going to come on next month sometime and talk about Ecto, which is the ORM we discussed. And he's going to chat with Sean about Diesel, which is the ORM Sean wrote. And they're going to compare notes, which I think will be really exciting to see like where their inspirations were the same and where they're different and how their implementations differ. Um, And I know Sean actually just released a really important version of Diesel himself, like 0.5, which added SQLite support, which he's really excited about. And he got a lot of publicity for for the Diesel library on Hacker. It was like the number one story on Hacker News for a while. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it was pretty cool. It's really interesting to see all these different things coming together. Yeah, it's going to be a really good conversation. I'm looking forward to that. All right. Should we wrap up? Yes. All right, cool. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 52. Rating and reviews on iTunes are greatly appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any others, you can tweet us at underscore bike shed, email us at host at bike shed.fm or leave a comment on the website. Thanks for listening to the bike shed. See you next time.